Welcome to Metrology Matters, a Zygo Corporation podcast where thought leaders share their insights on various surface metrology topics and how it enables the advancement of precision engineering and manufacturing across a wide range of industries and applications. Zygo is a business unit of Amatech. Well, hello and welcome to Metrology Matters, a podcast from Zygo. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the show. Today's podcast is going to answer the question, what's the right metrology for my parts? And I'm thrilled to introduce our two subject matter experts for the podcast today. First, we have Srini Var. He's a technical specialist for Global Powertrain. Srini, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Tyler. It's good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, Srini. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to get your expertise and insights on the show today. And we also have Dave O'Leary. He's the Director of Quality Assurance at Acumold. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Excellent. Well, before we go too far into our conversation today, let's, uh, let's give everyone some context and some background into who you are and what you do in each of your particular roles. So, Dave, let's start off with you. As the Director of Quality Assurance at Acumold, what does that mean and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Uh, Acumol is a micro-mold injection molding company. Uh, we make everything that goes in a lot of microelectronic parts, medical devices. Anything that has micro features or micro in size down into to micron type dimensions or even nanometer size measurements. So we're an injection molder. We, we build all of our own tools, make all of our parts to customer specifications. So we're kind of a make the print supplier. My day typically is interfacing with uh, with customers. We have a lot of pretty diverse customer lists, again, from microelectronics to uh, medical devices and other industries as well. So a lot of interface with customers on new projects. Before uh, the current pandemic, we had a lot of customer visits. Uh, we averaged two to three a week with customers touring, working on projects. Now we do virtual tours, so some time spent doing that. A lot of interface with internal project people, project engineers, quality engineers. I'm directly responsible for all the quality activities in in the business. We're a single site located in in Ankeny, Iowa. So everything happens inside the facility. I'm responsible for uh, all the quality engineers, quality systems stuff, our quality lab where all the metrology happens. Uh, At least it starts there, all the programming, and then a lot of metrology work happens out in in the production rooms as well. We operate class seven and class eight clean rooms for a lot of medical device and electronics equipment. So busy, busy days. Busy days indeed. And Dave is coming to us from a snowy Iowa today, he was telling me earlier. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's a snowy one up there. And Trini, you are in Michigan, correct? So tell us a little bit about what you do at Global Powertrain and and, um, give us some background there into your day to day. Yeah, I mean, obviously, everyone knows Ford Motor Company. And uh, in Ford Motor Company, there are multiple divisions. I work for Powertrain, right? Powertrain manufactures uh, cylinder, engine cylinder blocks, uh, heads, in, and all the way to transmission components, including gears. Along with now, we are manufacturing the electric motors and hybrid engines, right? So, primarily, my responsibility is to uh, support the entire global organization technically from the metrology perspective. And we have, you know, 23 plants globally across the board and they all make powertrain components. So um, we design, develop and manufacture these components. And um, so typically what happens is my responsibility includes, you know, whenever there's a design issues or a manufacturing issues 
or in terms of uh, you know installing new lines on different plants from the metrology perspective you know like they mentioned uh, rooms we don't have clean rooms but we do have metrology rooms that we maintain and any re- equipment that's responsible right we buy metrology equipment from nanometer all the way to millimeter so it's a wide range of product spectrum we support um, in terms of uh, new powertrain component it's kind of um, you know very spanned uh, responsibility across the globe so it's a uh, very good in a way because you get that cross-functional experience and uh, uh, able to help different uh, components i mean we have a vast variety of components uh, in powertrain uh, from you know like i said not only that we also make the carrier components who, and differential components, which again, these are all powertrain components, right? So, so we have a uh, wide variety of metrology needs within uh, global powertrain. My primary job is to basically support uh, technically and uh, functionally when there are major issues. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to have each of you on the podcast today. And it, it's interesting to me that you are uh, in, in distinct and diverse uh, applications and, and and you're working in different areas. And so that, that to me is, is particularly interesting. So Srini, let me start with you. When you have a program that requires the design and manufacture of new precision components or surfaces, at what phase is the metrology taken under consideration? Good question, Tyler. You know, as I said earlier, Ford Powertrain has a quite complexity of parts that we manufacture, right? So what happens is when we take a look at the any program, when I say program, as you realize, uh, every new uh, powertrain that comes in, whether it's a electric uh, powertrain or hybrid powertrain, if it is an existing product, so what that means is if the design is already there, we made that product before, and then we are just taking a look at some of the components that go into the powertrain, and we are trying to improve the performance of that, then what happens is usually the part community comes out and they will say, well, I'm going to reduce the tolerance on this existing component, which in turns in metrology part of it, puts the burden of the gauging to how do you inspect it? How do you control your process? So, so depending on whether it's an existing product or a new product, let's say um, like we're doing a hybrid motors right now, uh, that's not um, you know old product. It's a new product, so which requires quite a bit of interaction with the product design engineers on the feasibility of whether that design that I can make in the manufacturing plant and control it. Right. So we get involved in that front phase. But if it's an existing product we have been making for some time, then typically that goes through you know normal channels, and you know we go and manufacture it. Right. So a lot of times uh, the gauging engineers work with the product engineers to determine the correct specifications based on the functional requirements, right? So so depending on the program, uh, we get involved either at the design feasibility stage or or the manufacturing stage. So it's kind of uh, varies on the product, uh, Tyler. And Dave, same question for you. Uh, You know, when... Um, when you have a program that requires that the design and manufacture of new precision components or services, when do you take the, the metrology under consideration? Uh, right at the time we start quoting work, when the customer approaches us with a design and a model, and then later on with the drawing as we're quoting that, one of the considerations is, is this something size-wise, feature-wise, resin-wise? Again, we're an injection molder, so everything we do is with thermoplastic resins. 
if it's something we've seen before and we have uh, equipment that we think we can adapt or, or utilize for it, most of our, our measurement equipment is pretty flexible. <clears throat> then we'll look at what the capacity needs are or the current equipment. We have some dedicated rooms. For instance, we had a room that was in, in a, every single day was producing a million parts. Now, keep in mind, these are tiny parts. So, But it, it's still, from a measurement standpoint, uh, just the sheer volume and the frequency that we're sampling those parts takes a, a lot of equipment. So we look at it right, right up at the front front end. Uh, we review the models and the prints to see what type of tolerances are required. Again, if our, our measurement metrology equipment is capable of handling that and getting, getting the data we require. A lot of the customers are very specific based on their industry of also wanting data. So we have to look at uh, not only measuring the parts, but also capturing that data, collecting it, running it through the software. And then do we upload that to the customer or do we, you know, send it with each shipment? Very seldom do we ship it hard copy anymore, but. So we involve the quality engineers in deciding what equipment and frequency that we'll have to measure per the control plans and working with the customers. And also we involve the uh, people in the quality lab, the metrology experts that are going to be utilizing programming the equipment as uh, far as what metrology equipment we, we're going to need and then what we're going to need from a capacity standpoint, data collection and what data the customers are going to want and how best to collect that and then transmit that to the customer via websites or our hard copies. Mm -hmm. So Dave, how do you determine what type of metrology will be right for qualifying the components you need to characterize? Again, a lot of it has to do with the customers and what their the data demands are. Again, we operate in microelectronics, the medical device industry. Medical device industry is really uh, regulated, heavily regulated on what what they need to qualify parts, uh, they go through IQ, special quality, operational quality, are we production quality ready? Uh, tremendous amount of data from everything from uh, design of experiments to uh, trial runs. And a lot of customers require the data to be transmitted directly to them. So we need to have equipment that can uh, measure fast, measure accurately to the, to the requirements we need based on the customer designs, models, and prints, and then be able to uh, pull that data together, not for our review, internally to make sure the process is, is running where true to form and capable. A lot of customers also require the process parameter data to be collected along with the measurement data so they know where the process is running at. Setting-wise, when we're, we're measuring the parts so they can match up the process data with the with the metrology data on the parts. And then it really comes down to how frequently we're going to pull samples, how large the samples have to be, what capability we're trying to maintain from a dimensional standpoint for the designs, and then uh, being able to report all that. Excellent. Excellent. So, Srini, uh, do you have anything to add from, from your perspective? Uh, give, give, us, give us your side of things uh, as, as it relates to the global powertrain and Ford. One thing is quite clear um, as I'm listening today, right? Um, the There are differences like how we do it at Ford versus what Dave is mentioning, which is very good. But for us, the customer is us as a manufacturing community to our product community. So a lot of things we do compared to what Dave is saying is based on the internal Ford automotive standards, right? We have our own quality control plan. And uh, so those kinds of things will come into the picture 
when we determine what type of metrology is right for that component, right? Typically, um, what I look at with the engineers is, hey, there are three different levels of control. One is the dimensional level. So basically what you do is you'll say like your size control or boundary conditions, right? Height, length, depth, et cetera. Then you look at the second shape control. Um, let's say you have a hole, you have a surface. We would look and say, what type of control I want to have on the surface, like flatness, roundness, straightness, et cetera. And then finally, we get into the uh, structure level, right? Surface structure level, like uh, roughness, waviness. So each level typically requires different type of metrology in terms of accuracy and repeatability. Um, like Dave pointed out, we look for the same things what Dave is looking for, which is we need to be able to be fast enough to measure on a sample basis because most of our inspection systems are sample basis. The end, the tolerance of the feature is the most critical component we look for, right? Um, because as the tolerances get tighter, um, the requirements on the metrology equipment becomes much stringent um, in terms of maintaining it to get that accuracy and repeatability. So we go through these uh, three levels of controls, right? Dimensional, shape, and uh, surface structure level. And then we determine what metrology equipment is right match for it. And typically we have a standard list of metrology equipment that we maintain over the years. And then if they fit into the standards that we have, the equipment that we buy, that's fine. But if we determine, or sometimes I have to step in and where the tolerance that's given on the print, you know, doesn't meet the requirements of the speed, accuracy, and repeatability, then we start to look for in the market saying, is there a gauge out there that could meet these requirements? And then um, we go on a, um, you know, like a design uh, feasibility, which includes we call concept ready and application ready. And then uh, we do the testing. And then if that fits into the tolerance band and the other requirement of accuracy and repeatability, then we add it to the list of standard equipment. And then that's kind of how we characterize. So there's a whole plan of how we go about depending on the part print and these dimensional levels. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Srini, how do you determine where the metrology will go? You know, uh, production floor, metrology lab, that sort of thing. And does measurement time play into this decision at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, that's the one of the time measurement time is the key, key um, aspect for us, Ford Motor Company, because uh, we're a high volume manufacturer, right? We produce a lot of millions of parts. So, so the decision time uh, for the metrology is very critical, right? Um, you make one mistake, then you have lots of parts on your hand that you might have to rework or some cases, um, you know, typically we don't, uh, you know, want to go rework. We don't uh, lately because our quality systems are robust enough where we actually control the process rather than, you know, later. Um, so what one of the things is, so, so the measurement cycle time is very important. That, that becomes a big part of uh, metrology decision. But the other aspect of the question that you asked, Tyler, is how do you determine whether this gauge goes to production for a metrology lab? Primarily, the requirement for us is the gauge has to be line side, right? So what that means is wherever your point of manufacturing is, we would like to have the gauge right next to it so we can control the process. Now, lately, that's becoming a challenge because of the fact that 
lot of our product specifications are migrating more into the surface structure level. That means waviness and roughness, right? So that requires a different type of traditional gauging equipment typically we buy. Um, now, so we are more into now uh, coherent scan interferometers, right? More of a non-contact uh, gauging we're evolving into that. So one of the issues what happens is with that, to take that gauge and put them on the shop floor and you're looking for 10 nanometer accuracy, that brings a lot of issues into the forefront because in a typical shop floor, you know, you have temperature variations, you have contamination that, that comes along with the parts, so you have to deal with them. So, But our primary focus when we determine a gauge requirement is it has to be a production floor. But because of some gauges, we cannot sustain it, you know, especially uh, the 10 nanometer accuracy gauges, we might decide to put them in a, we don't call them a metrology lab, we call them a quality control room, right? So they will go into that room where we control the um, ambient temperature, humidity, so do we can maintain those accuracy of that equipment. So depending on that, but our primary focus is always to put them on the production floor um, because of the speed that it allows and it allows the operator to access it pretty quickly and control the process uh, by having right next to the next floor. So most of our gauges are shop floor. So that's how we determine, uh, you know, that as a given standard, we put them on the floor. But if we can, then we move into this uh, quality control room. And Dave, what about from your perspective? Um, is, is it similar to what to what Srini said, or is it different given the given the different applications that you work with? No, it's very similar. One one advantage we have is even our production areas are relatively clean and climate controlled. Again, we operate some class seven and eight clean rooms, which are similar from an air quality and cleanliness as our quality lab. But of course, like Srini said, we want to put the equipment as close to the production machines as we can and get the production operators the quickest feedback possible or the process techs the quickest feedback possible on, on, on the quality of the parts. It's so one of the main considerations is, is the piece of the metrology equipment capable of operating in the production environment and giving us the accuracy and repeatability we need to measure the parts. Most of our parts, most of our metrology equipment is non-contact using optics, lasers, similar to what Shereen said. Having a change in in room temperature can really cause differences in, in, in the accuracy of that equipment. We, we tend to want to fixture all the parts and make it as easy on the production operators or process techs as possible so they can walk over, set the parts on the piece of equipment, pull up the correct program, push the button, get the feedback after the measurement's done, and then know if they have a, a good running process or if they need to make some adjustments or do they need to quarantine parts. Absolutely. So, Dave, one of the things we we haven't discussed um, specifically up to this point is cost, right? So, how does the cost of metrology play into the purchasing decision overall? Well, a lot of it has to do with the customers and what their again their requirements are going to be from a, a metrology standpoint, data collection standpoint. We'll look at it again right up at the quoting. If, for instance, we have to buy a piece of dedicated equipment because of a new program and a new customer. Is the customer willing to uh, front that non-recurring expense and, and then that piece of equipment may be dedicated to them and then we can only measure their their parts on it? Or are we going to utilize some equipment we already have? And if that's the case, then of course, we'll just adapt and utilize that and get the fixturing set up and the program set up to run the new parts. If we do have to add measurement metrology capacity, then again, we're looking at what the payback is. Is this one program going to cover it? 
Is it equipment we have a potential future use for? Because if we buy it right, it's robust enough. One of the main considerations we have is a lot of metrology equipment, you look at the base price from the various suppliers or vendors, and it looks pretty attractive until you start looking at uh, whatever it is, uh, you know, server-driven stages, uh, uh, extra analysis softwares or extra objectives and lenses to handle the, 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 you know, the parts, the size of parts and the size of features on our parts. So you want to make sure you have a complete picture of what that total cost is going to be and then what the lifespan of that piece of metrology equipment is going to be. Again, if it's dedicated to a single project, you know, in electronics industries, things change so fast. The lifespan of a program might be three to five years. Well, you'd like a piece of metrology equipment that gives you a longer return than, than that. So, you know, is, is there applications after this project? And then we can use it in the future. And of course, if the customer is going to pay because if they want to dedicate it to their equipment from a capacity and a capability standpoint, then we just make sure that we work with the customer to identify that piece of equipment and then buy exactly what they want. Because sometimes we have to be able to reproduce what the customer might be measuring at their sites or at their contract manufacturers. So a lot of considerations go into uh, what type of equipment, what price we're going to end up paying because of the capabilities we need. And then again, really determines, a lot of it's determined by the customers and what their specific requirements for a project are. And Trini, same thing to you. Um, just when it comes to, to cost, how does it play a, how does it play a role in um, the cost of metrology play a role into the purchasing decision? Oh, absolutely. Very critical. Mm. I mean, I think Dave hits a lot of uh, critical points, right? Um, ROI, return on investment, that uh, how much you get. For us, it's a little bit different than Dave's model is, which is we buy for ourselves powertrain. And so the thing that we pay most attention to, or I've been involved quite a bit in implementing that uh, part of the standardization is the gauge has to be flexible. What that means is, uh, like Dave pointed out, if the program time span is only three to five years, um, then what do I do with that asset? So so what we do is our critical part of the strategy is to make that gauge flexible so that I can move that gauge to some other new program, upcoming pro- program by upgrading to the next level, uh, like they mentioned, you know, like lens upgrade or software upgrade, things like that. In the past, we used to buy a lot of dedicated gauges um, based on the program length, but because we have to cope up with adaptability, with the quick timing and Programs are much shorter and their architectures are growing. So one of our key primary cost decisions is based on how flexible that gauge is. Can I use that you know, over across a span of multiple programs, multiple years? So that will be a big part of it. But the other part of the also coming to cost quite a bit is we also need to make sure the accuracy and repeatability of the device is meets the need of the tolerance, right? Uh, if it, it meets it, then the question becomes is how much money then I can pay for that gauge. And, um, you know, uh, because we don't want to go for a gauge that even though it's affordable, but if it doesn't possess the accuracy and dependability, uh, we wouldn't be even looking into that, right? So the minimum threshold for us is to get that accuracy and dependability. And typically, 
we look for 15% repeatable, they are the feature tolerance. Let's say you have a dimension that is uh, 30 microns that I, as a specification, so we look for four and a half microns of repeatability, you know, of the, that particular gauge. So not only it needs to be able to give you that repeatability, then would it be able to move it to, you know, another program? It's universal enough to program it, you know, the data structures that go along with the Ford network and all other things that Dave is mentioning that surrounds the gauge system as a peripheral equipment, right? So these are all comes into picture, but at the end of the day, still to this day, cost of the metrology is very important to sustain um, within the budget that we need to you know, buy this equipment. Um, and also, we need to be able to move this gauge into the shaft floor to run. And typically, one of the things that we're struggling a little bit, I think whole industry as it is, the skill set that you need to run the gauges, right? Uh, some of the very sophisticated gauges that are you know, in nanometer accuracies to maintain that level, you need certain skill set with the operators. Unfortunately, on the shop floor, it's tough to get that skill set. So you still need to be able to modify that particular gauge so that you make it simple enough for the operator to be able to maintain those accuracy. So these are all, you know, coming to the cost factor. So you need to look into it. So not only just buying the, you know, from the OEM that makes the gauge, implementing all the way to the production floor is the cost model that you have to pay attention to. That becomes a big uh, decision for us, how much money that is uh, in terms of buying that uh, gauge. After sell support from the, from the gauge supplier, you know, uh, you know, from a training standpoint and ongoing training and ability to answer questions, as, as Srini said, with, with getting the talent in, in the workforce out there that not only can operate the gauge, but for the piece of metrology equipment, but also then if necessary, program it or set up the data collection properly. So it's very important, especially in the new environment with employee turnover, whether it just be within roles within your company or with just the way people come in and out of companies. It's highly unusual, you know, that you got a 20-year metrology person these days because Mm -hmm. the people have retired that have been in the job and the new people coming in, they may not. So, yeah, having having a good metrology company that says, We've got very robust training. We have a robust follow-up. We have robust customer support after the fact. And if we've if we've had that before from a metrology company, then we'll tend to go back to them, um, even if their initial say device cost or price is, is more. Just another consideration. I do agree with the Dave. I think like Dave mentioned, right? One of the things you know the skill set that requires to be a metrologist are possess that gauging knowledge nowadays is a very highly desirable skill. And, uh, you know, over the years, we lost many good people that have been through the metrology world. And uh, we are starting to get the second generation of people, but, but it's very tough to have people that are skilled enough to maintain these gates on the floor, uh, line side, you know, requiring nanometer accuracy and repeatability. That's one of the challenges that I think uh, the whole industry is facing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's some, some great context to add on to, uh, add on to that answer. So thank you for, uh, thank you for doing that, Dave and, and, and Srini. So I, I want to wrap up the conversation today by looking forward. So Srini, let's, let's start with you. Do you see the need for surface metrology evolving and, uh, and how would you envision its implementation? Oh, very much, uh, Tyler. I, in fact, you know, I got, uh, 
I introduced to uh, Zygo, but just because of that, right? Now, because what's happening now in powertrain world, I will speak uh, only in terms of powertrain. Uh, um, there is a quite a bit of demand for the engines that require, you know, gas mileage. Even though we're shifting over to battery electric vehicles and hybrid, but the high uh, high performance ICE engines or combustion engines, if you call it, right? So what happens is over the years, last 20 years, the engine that we make, um, like I explained earlier in the uh, discussion, the dimensional level and the shape control are the two important factors, you know, in the old days, right? Now, the third level, which is the surface structure level, is becoming very important because the interaction of the component is something our product engineers are paying a lot of attention to. So what that means is it brings the roughness and waviness parameters into the picture. So every ceiling surface, every uh, interactive surfaces to uh, machine surfaces, normally we never used to see a surface structure defined. You know, basically you will just get a normal RA value, you know, surface structure of average value. Now you see all these, uh, you know, uh, I call them exotic, but they're required by functional anyway, like the bearing parameters or, you know, those kinds of the refined surface metrology is evolving, right? So what that means is the requirement of measuring the surface structure is becoming more prime. Uh, let's say if you have 100% uh, gauging and within that gauging, maybe 5% is surface metrology, you know, in the past, but last two years, I would say, that's kind of moving towards more 40% um, that you need to focus more on surface metrology. And that obviously requires a lot of non-contact metrology because to get to that nanometer level and to meet the shop floor uh, speed, accuracy, and repeatability, yes, we do see quite a bit of surface metrology evolving from the functional aspect of it. That also um, brought into quite a bit of interesting, you know, in the past as a research in my past life as a 3D surface finish, now it's becoming a standard. So I'm spending quite a bit of time uh, developing methods with the 3D surface finish that meets the functional requirements. And not only that, our most of our product community is very much interested in uh, the topography of the surface, right? So in the past, just uh, having one profile scan is good enough, but nowadays it's uh, more data is better, right? So. Mm-hmm. That's kind of we are evolving into surface structure, and um, so it's a, it's becoming a big part of our, our metrology process. And Dave, final word on this: Do you see the need for uh, for surface metrology evolving? Oh yeah, of course. Um, again, as, as everything keeps getting smaller, whether it be your microelectronics, your medical devices, the more demanding the requirements of those devices, the models and and, and print requirements we're seeing. Shrini said are, are getting way more specific where simple surface roughness call out was adequate before. Now they're putting even more parameters on that. And, and the ability to do the non-contact surface measurements is extremely critical into those nanometer ranges. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, we mold a lot of lenses out of plastic for various industries. And again, as you can imagine, in Shrini's industry, the automotive industry, pick the industry, whether it be LIDAR, whether it be lasers, whether it be optics, there's just more demands out there. And, and those optical engineers, those, those laser type engineers, what they're putting on models and prints from a requirement standpoint to make these devices that much smaller, just really dries up the need for, for more accurate, more reliable, more repeatable 
metrology equipment to say, you know, part after part after part, day after day, mold after mold, cavity after cavity, that we're getting the same exact parts off there and that they're going to be able to use them in their devices. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, is there anything uh, that we haven't touched on yet that we'd like to uh, to mention on, on metrology, on surface metrology, or anything that we've discussed today uh, before we wrap up? Is there any, uh, any closing thoughts or any uh, final things that we'd like to mention? Yeah, Tyler, I would like to add one of the things I want to mention. You know, I'm seeing this quite a bit now. Metrology, most of the time in the past, used to be afterthought, right? Um, after the design is done, then you scramble for gauge to measure that. Now, with uh, so much pressure on the performance of these, uh, you know, as, as special powertrain components, I think the requirement of uh, a metrologist or a gauging engineer is much more in demand to work with, uh, you know, the cross-functional teams. Is much in, you know, better team, what we call is, uh, you are pulled as a gauging engineer or metrologist way ahead into the process. And it's becoming a, my opinion, at least in Ford Motor Companies, a prime job rather, rather than a, just being a metrologist. And after the fact that you get the print, we are much more involved in the front. So the evolution is uh, quite a bit uh, fast, rapid nowadays, uh, being a metrologist or gauge engineer. Yeah, I'd reiterate exactly what, what Srini said is that measurement capability metrology is, is right at the quoting stage. If you can make the part, can you measure the part? Because if you can't measure it, it doesn't make, matter if you can make it. So we do a fantastic job building molds and making parts. And again, how are we going to measure that right up front and then uh, be able to keep up with uh, where the designers and, and, uh, and the engineers are going at our customers and then our own engineers internally. So metrology has to keep up and be right there at the beginning of the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Metrology front and center. And uh, that's why this podcast is called Metrology Matters. And so uh, thank you so much to our to our two subject matter experts today, Srinivar and Dave O'Leary for joining us here on Metrology Matters, a podcast from Zygo. Srini and Dave, thank you so much again for uh, for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone out there who has listened to this episode of the podcast. We appreciate you joining us very much. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, Metrology Matters on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with the latest from Zygo and the latest in thought leadership on metrology. And of course, we'll be back soon with more episodes of the podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Music.